Peggy Passanando and Andrew Otter met performing in The Sound of Music. He was the captain, she was Maria. They sang Edelweiss. It's a real tearjerker of a scene because the couple knows they're going to be chased by Nazis as soon as the song is over. I was supposed to begin it, you know, and get kind of choked up, and she was supposed to be there to save me. And um, I was supposed to walk slowly, like in the movie, like when she's trying to help him. But I would always just like run up there because <laughs> I was so excited to like wrap my arms around him while we were singing. And my friends would be in the back of the room jumping up and down. She was 12 years old. I was 13. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Today on the show, an epic love story. It's got all the drama you'd expect from a childhood romance, with passionate proclamations and mind games and ultimatums and misunderstandings. And a surprise that makes all of those misunderstandings make sense. There's something about first crushes when you're prepubescent and the things that you find most attractive about a person are their quirks. You know, things that when you're older might send you running. That's how it was for Peggy with Andrew. She was in seventh grade. He was in eighth. She was popular. Says she collected friends like they were possessions. Andrew was socially awkward. He didn't do well in school, but he was weird in the best way. Like, for example, he would always carry around deodorant inside of his coat pocket. He was into Egyptian history and drawing. He is the most wonderful artist. He'd make these landscapes with pencil, distorted surrealist landscapes, always featuring a tree, a rock, and a hill. He was bored out of his mind by small talk. Weather comes up so flipping much. Like, why are we talking about this? We can all look out the window. Andrew preferred long, meaningful conversations, and he and Peggy would have plenty of them over the phone. And I just thought his phone voice was excellent. You know, it just, it, it was deeper than a lot of the other boys at school at that time. And he has such a rich vocabulary. So he just always sounded so grown up and smart. Peggy and Andrew grew up in South Sacramento, just blocks apart. They were raised Mormon, and Peggy's dad said she couldn't go on a real date until she was 16. So the phone was really the only alone time they got. They hung out in groups at school and church, and he'd walk her home, but always with other kids. They carried on like this for two entire years. The thing is, all this time, it had not occurred to Andrew that they were dating. He admitted this to Peggy one day when she was a freshman in high school. That night... They both went to a Halloween barn dance. I was in with my friends, um, and then her friend Stephanie approached me and said, Peggy's really upset, you know, and it's because of you. And so, like, I had to track her down, and she was sitting on a fence outside, and, you know, she looked really dejected. So I just approached, and I asked her what was wrong, and she said, how could you not know that we're going out? And I, all I could tell her is what I knew, which was I really liked being around her. I really liked talking to her on the phone. I, I really liked her. And it was in that moment, basically, when she was like, how much do you like me? 
that I had to really think about and realize that I did actually have some romantic inclinations toward her. She uh, essentially played this game where she was like, well, I don't know how I feel about you anymore. <laughs> but but it wasn't long after that that we were officially a couple. I guess officially in my mind. At 14 years old, Peggy is feeling like she might have found her husband, which she says makes her feel like she's right on track. While dating at a young age is not condoned in Mormon culture, girls are expected to marry by 18 or 19. When Peggy was 12, there were workshops at her church on how to be a good housewife and mother, and there were fashion shows where girls got to try on their mother's and sister's wedding dresses. Peggy had been dreaming of her wedding her entire life, and she started picturing Andrew up there on the altar with her. One day, Andrew gets on his knee, takes her hand, tells her, I may be falling in love with you. But he says these strong emotions scare him, and he thinks they should cool things down. Mind you, they've still never kissed. Peggy dumps him, and in a vindictive move, she lies. Tells him it's because she wants to respect her father's wishes to not date till she turns 16. It was like a week or two later that at a church dance, I was with my friends feeling really depressed that I actually saw her with another guy. Uh And then what happened next? Well, I almost got into a physical altercation with that guy, um, which she thoroughly enjoyed. Yes. I mean, I would love to say that I'm a better person than that, but I am not a better person than that. I just thought... Like, here's these two guys who are literally fighting me over the hallway. That makes me very desirable. Peggy continues to see other guys in her Mormon way. But Andrew's still obviously in love with her. He kind of gives it away with the save the date card he sends on Valentine's Day, asking her out four entire months before her 16th birthday. But Peggy's just not into him. She wants to find someone a little less eccentric. Andrew drops out of school in 10th grade. He's bookish, but he can't keep up with the assignments. He spends the next few years caring for his ailing mother. Peggy graduates high school, and just as all her friends are getting married and having babies, Andrew is off on a mission to Australia. She called me before I even left on my mission and basically like did this like five-minute-long monologue, which I didn't hear her breathe once, where she explained to me that, you know, she knew that I loved her, but she didn't love me back and she wanted us to still be friends. But that I should, you know, be rest assured that she would never, ever love me the way that I loved her. And I went to see him off. And there was this whole fiasco where he has a bunch of brothers and they were teasing him. You can't go on your mission without ever having been kissed. Everybody's going to give you such a hard time and you're going to be a pariah. So they were, all, they were all saying, Peggy, kiss him before he leaves, kiss him before he leaves. And I, uh, and I just made a big stink and said, absolutely not. My kisses are worth something and I'm going to give them away when I feel like it and to who I want. And not because all you idiots are pressuring me. <laughs> Had you kissed anyone yet? No, I hadn't. But I said to him quite clearly, when you come home, I will be very happy to greet you with my new husband and my new baby. I'm not waiting for you. And then he left. But... Dear Elder Otter. She 
basically, practically, from the first week I was gone. Hi, it's Peggy. Would send me letters. Still not engaged or married. That cop I wrote you about last time is getting married tomorrow. He met her right after he and I stopped talking in late February, and she has three kids. He wasn't right for me anyway. I have another date tonight, but I know I can do better. When I look back at this, I think, oh my gosh, I really hate myself for doing this, for being so, I thought I was being nice, but it was so not nice. Peggy writes Andrew weekly letters. In every single one, she rubs in his face all these dates with other guys. She does not hear back from Andrew. It took me a very long time, several months before I sent a letter back to her. And so much of that was just sort of not trusting that I would say the right thing or that I had the right words. And so I wrote letters that I never sent to her for months, you know, just threw them away. Um, Until finally, she kind of gave me an ultimatum. You know, all your friends write me, and I write to you way more often than any of them. What's the matter with you? June 27th, 1999. Oh, God. Hey, girlfriend. Sorry, yo, for not sending my letters earlier. I've been trying to finish one for a month now without much luck. Keep dating. Try to hold off on marriage until just before I get home, like no more than a month before my homecoming. That way I can pretend to be surprised, hurt, and angry when I see you again. Thanks for all of your letters and the package. Thanks for the picture, too. Another missionary stole it, so please send another. A normal one this time. You know how I feel about glamour shots. Love, Elder Andy Otter. Andrew keeps writing to her, saying things that would be too bold for most 19-year-olds facing unrequited love. I'll be jealous of who you marry, he tells her. You'll make a great wife and mother. He sends her a questionnaire that some of the missionaries are sending to girls back home. It asks for her measurements. Which, oh my God. And lipstick marks. If flavored, please specify. Despite herself, Peggy is smitten. She starts writing confessional letters back to Andrew, but then she takes those and stuffs them in a box and sends him much more level-headed ones. Until one day... Hey, Andy, this is a preamble. (laughs) She sends him a letter that says everything she's been hiding away in that box. This letter is me actually pouring out the contents of my soul to you. So please get comfortable and perhaps somewhere that no one's going to be reading over your shoulder. My dearest Andy, I only just finished reading your letter and I'm so heady and so woozy and dizzy that I couldn't walk in a straight line right now if I had to. First of all, I'm very glad you got that vanilla smell. I was afraid it would dissipate before it got all the way to you in Australia, so I sure doused that baby in my perfume. (laughs) Biology is a very hard class this semester, but I'm going to do it. This last week, we had an experiment that I have to tell you about. We were put in pairs, and we were monitoring each other's heart rate on these machines. And the teacher told us to think of something that makes us happy. So I closed my eyes and I imagined you coming home and stepping off the plane and coming home to me and my heart literally skipped a beat on the heart rate machine. And the teacher got mad because he said I was supposed to think of something calm, but he did not say that at first. She tells him she's done dating. Would I mind if you fell in love with me? What am I supposed to say to that? You're not here, so I guess the rumor mill hasn't gotten to you yet, but I'm telling all the people... 
in my life that my tentative plan is to finish school and I'm taking a deep breath here and then marry my missionary. Peggy begins preparing. She buys silk flowers and makes centerpieces and boutonnieres. She orders her wedding dress. She selects the menu, the tablecloths. When Andrew comes home, Peggy follows him to the church where he's released from his mission. The second he's free, he runs down the hallway, past all his family and friends, past his mother, who's shouting at him to come back and acknowledge all these people who have come to see him. He grabs Peggy by the arm, pulls her outside, and he kisses her. And they have a massive makeout session outside the church. It is romantic and inappropriate, and Peggy is into it. A few weeks later, Christmas rolls around. Christmas morning, Peggy drops by Andrews with a project she's been working on. It's a collection of every single letter she and Andrew sent each other during his mission. So that was his Christmas gift from me. You know, I had retyped it and printed it all out on like acid-free paper and bound it in this beautiful book. And I said, here, like, this is every letter we exchanged. And this is the story of, of, this is our love story, you know. And then basically I stood there staring at him, waiting for him to hand me an engagement ring. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have one. (laughs) (laughs) He gave me a box with some Santa Claus mugs and some cocoa packets and some stale cookies And I was like, what is this mess? (laughs) Peggy dumps the Santa mugs and the cocoa packets and the stale cookies back at her house, shoves it in a closet, and she waits. So I kind of said, well, all right, I guess next week is is New Year's. So, you know, you got a week. And um, (laughs) New Year's came, and we did go out, but he did not propose. So I started feeling pretty anxious. So January 5th was a Friday night, and I thought, well, this is it. It's happening or or it's not happening at all. So I went out and got a new skirt. I got some tall boots. She was dressed to impress. And, I mean, I was blown away. Like, like I thought, oh, is she really expecting this to happen today? And uh, we went out to dinner, which for us, it was really fancy at that time. It was the Olive Garden. But, you know, I was 20. And so so we went out to dinner and the whole night, he's going to love telling you this story. He is such a jerk. I kept using uh, certain words that, you know, like I wasn't engaged uh, in the activity that we were in or, or I wasn't, I couldn't commit to something on the menu. And so he's just saying stuff like that all night, all night. And I'm just getting madder and madder. And finally, I just like slammed down my menu in the restaurant. And um, and I just start crying, you know. <laughs> like, And it's just totally packed. They're in a full restaurant on a Friday night. And I'm just like crying loudly. And I said, um, hey, I am still hot enough to get somebody better than you. So if you're not going to do this, you better tell me now while I can still get somebody else. And um, I was just crying and crying. And he's like, we better, we better go. We're, we're definitely making a scene. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we're driving home, and I'm still crying. And I didn't get my license until 2007, so she had to do all the driving. Peggy's at the wheel, bawling her eyes out. Still, Andrew does not let up on the puns. Like, 
you know, I'm really sorry you weren't able to commit to that dinner. I was really thinking that would be a place I would like to go and just really enjoy that kind of food for the rest of my life. So I had to like pull over because I was like so upset and I couldn't calm down. I was not safe to drive. (laughs) So finally, um, I got to his parents' house and I was like, get out of my car. You know, I will see you again. Never. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, please, please come in. Please come in. So I went in the house and, um, and it was all set out where the mugs were on the table with, with the hot chocolate in them and the cookies in a little plate. And there was a fire going. He had walked to my parents' house earlier in the day, I guess, and had retrieved his present with the Santa cocoa mugs and so the whole room was all set up, all romantic and beautiful. And um, I looked around and I looked at him and I, and I said, like, you're so stupid, I hate you. <laughs> and, and so he started laughing and he got down on one knee. And I just said, Peggy, will you marry me? And I said, of course, I'll marry you, you idiot. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> We were engaged. We made out a little bit on my parents' couch, and we were engaged. So wait a second. So this was your strategy, to like piss her off so thoroughly yes. <laughs> that she would not see it coming? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and part Why? of my thing was because she came on so strong with the wanting to be married and wanting you know, to get engaged. And I just thought... There is no way to like surprise this woman because of what she's expecting. And so for me, it was like, I need to significantly lower her expectations <laughs> so that I have a chance of actually surprising her and pleasing her in some way, you know, with, with the engagement. Peggy says she wasn't exactly pleased by how far Andrew took his joke. But she does love a good story, and she's happy to have a good one to tell about her engagement, even if it's not at all the story she had dreamed of. Coming up, Peggy and Andrew have a baby, who throws their happily ever after all out of whack. Don't go away. (laughs) We're back. So Peggy and Andrew get married, and before long, things are a little off. Andrew's depressed, having a lot of anxiety attacks. He's got a job at a warehouse. He finds himself staying late a lot because he's obsessing over printing the box labels just right. Andrew would much rather be reading and researching than working in a warehouse, and he wonders if he'd be better as a history teacher. But he doesn't have the education to pull it off. Plus, things are not happening in the kid department. Andrew and Peggy try for almost six years before they finally have a son, Elias. And and so what was Elias like as a baby? The most incredibly difficult baby that me or anyone I knew had ever encountered. It was surreal how horrible it was. He came out determined to be older than he was. Like, he was practically 10 and a half pounds when he was born. And it seemed like not being able to move on his own really frustrated him. He would he he would grunt and groan in trying to roll over and trying to, you know, make his hands do what he wanted them to do. He would cry so much, but he didn't meet the criteria for colic. And so nobody knew what was wrong. 
I just knew that he never, ever slept. And I just felt like something had gone terribly wrong. But I didn't know what or why. Elias continues to have explosive temper tantrums that Peggy and Andrew can't explain or control. But in some ways, he's a baby superhero. And it only took him till, I want to say, eight months before he was walking. And it really wasn't long after that before he was, like, running. And he was reading and writing by two and a half or three. So he, he's just always been really, really advanced in some ways. Um, but when I sent him to kindergarten, they let me know that he had a harder time listening and following the directions and sitting still than anybody else in the class. And I know um, at least once or twice, he was like under a table crying and they couldn't coax him out. So I got brought into the school to crawl under the table with him to calm him down. And the other kids were just doing normal kindergarten things, you know, playing with blocks or coloring. And I'm getting called in repeatedly because my kid's crying under the table and, and can't handle school. What did you think it was? I just thought that he had a artist temperament, like my husband, who is also kind of touchy about some things that I don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> but my husband and I have worked it out, so I figured that my son and I would, too. Eventually, the school puts their foot down, insists that the otters get Elias evaluated. In the meantime, Peggy and Andrew have both left Mormonism. Peggy, for feminist reasons, Andrew finds the history of the church illogical. And they've had a second child, a girl who doesn't have any of the same issues as Elias, which makes it seem like, yeah, maybe they should get Elias checked out. So they make an appointment with a pediatric neurologist. Andrew takes Elias to the appointment. This is worth noting because things have gotten so bad at Andrew's work that he and Peggy have switched places. She gets a job. He quits to be home with the kids. It was brand new for me. Peggy had done all of the appointments up to, up to the point that I had taken him to the, the neurologist. So he looked at Elias briefly. And he had, you know, basically he had Elias walk a line. He had Elias talk to him for... Uh, a little bit of time, and then he sent Elias off with, I believe, a nurse outside of the office, you know, to sort of interact and watch a little, a little video and just sort of be out of the room. And he was asking me questions. There's a low hum in the room. I could hear the air conditioning going, and their computers were like the whir of the um, the power supplies on their computers were really loud and so like I was really trying to focus on what he was asking me about my son and about myself and I was answering his questions as best as possible but I had to tell him at a certain point it's like you've got so much noise in here that it's really hard to pay attention to anything that you're telling me and so we started talking about that a little bit and um and then talking more about my past. And he said to me, uh, Mr. Otter, uh, I have no doubt that your son has autism. And he said, but you exhibit more signs to me than he does at this point. Uh, so you really need to get yourself tested by uh, a, a psychologist who specializes in you know, adults with autism. 
And what was your reaction? Uh, so when, you know, when we got such a, a strong suggestion to have Elias tested, you know, to be on the autism spectrum, I did my research. And the more I researched, the more I felt like they were talking about me. And so when I went into the meeting, I wasn't entirely blindsided. Um, but I grew up with this idea of teachers and my parents and therapists basically just telling me that I didn't have the skills to live a normal adult life. And so this sort of was just something that I grew up with was just, I never had these skills, but when I had somebody tell me you're probably autistic and this is never going away, I felt like, Oh my God, I will never have the capability of being a normal human being. And that was devastating. So Andy called me and I, and I, I went out to the parking lot, you know, at work and he said, Elias is autistic and so am I. And I felt like the earth, you know, cracked open. I, I mean, it was like, it was, it was almost audible to me just that my world broke, broke in half because um, when he said it, I knew it was true. And so many things immediately fit into place. I imagine it being like um, one of those moments like in the movies and you like go back and you get flashbacks of all of the different <laughs> moments, you know, when you should have noticed the clues um, and you didn't. <laughs> like like the usual suspects, you know, or it's like, oh, that and that. Exactly right. Exactly right. Like no matter, like that happens in TV all the time. And I'm like, that was so obvious. Why didn't I see that? I don't, I'm horrible at putting together all the clues. Yes, my husband and my son were both autistic and I should have known it all along. So now what? So then what? I had a huge period of questioning where I was thinking, like, what else don't I know about myself and my world? How can it be that I have lived in the middle of this for so long with all these obvious, obvious signs and never realized it? I mean, is the sky purple? You know, <laughs> do I really love to eat cauliflower? Like, what else do I not know about myself? Because these things that I consider the most elemental and basic to my existence, I was completely wrong about. One thing that suddenly made a ton of sense was, of course, Andrew's cool demeanor when people are having emotional breakdowns, which turns out to be a drawback in dating, but a plus in parenting. Then there's the fact that he learned to look people in the eye from a tip in Poor Richard's Almanac. There's his dislike of being touched, even by Peggy sometimes his inability to hold down a job, to pay the bills, or even write checks. At this point, the entire family was living off of Peggy's $14 an hour. But it wasn't enough to pay for all the doctors and medications. So Peggy got a second job, minimum wage at Kohl's, to make ends meet. When she wasn't working, she was driving Andrew and Elias to their appointments, managing their prescriptions, and on top of it all, caring for the baby. This is maybe a, a tough question, but um, did you feel like you had picked the right guy? I don't mind you asking that question at all, because this is 
for sure something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And like, if I had known, would I have done it different? And I have come to the conclusion that the things that I love about my husband were the same before and after the diagnosis. And the things that I don't like about my husband were the same before and after, too. When Peggy weighed everything, there seemed to be more in the plus column. In, in my mind, um, I, I feel like it's a net negative, uh, at least with having a husband with, with autism. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't understand the decision that she's made to like stick with me and you know not find somebody who is more you know typical is more average i don't understand it i'm grateful to be clear when andrew talks about his autism he's talking about high functioning autism a couple years ago we would have called it asperger's back in 2013 a new diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders was published and it reclassified everything on the autism spectrum simply as autism Andrew says he finds this inaccurate and feels stigmatized for being called autistic. I asked an autism researcher about this. She said that lumping all forms of autism together makes sense medically, but that people like Andrew should continue using the term Asperger's socially if they want to. One of the defining characteristics of, let's call it Asperger's, is the tendency to obsess over one particular area of interest. For Andrew right now, that thing is history. For his eight-year-old son Elias... It's video games. But it's really hard to hold conversations with him because he doesn't care about anything having to do with history. He doesn't care about any of the things that I'm obsessed with. (laughs) He has his own obsessions. The only thing that I I think I really connect with him on is Lego Um, because I love playing with Legos and I love collecting minifigures, the the little characters in the Lego set. Well, even with the Lego thing, like – just recently, in the past week, Elias said to me, Dad, I have other interests besides Legos. I don't want to just talk about this with you. <laughs> which, which is driving me up the wall because I'm like, what do I talk to you about then? <laughs> I don't know what to do. Elias does have one other obsession that Andrew can relate to. My son really likes girls. <laughs> what, like... Last year, there was a girl in his class that he had a crush on. And, like, he wanted to have a relationship with her, and he planned everything out. Like, on paper, he would write down, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're eventually going to get married, and we're going to have children, and stuff like that. And so he'd write all of these things out. And he wrote a song for her, and we had to, like, beg and plead and bargain with him to not sing the song to the girl at school because <laughs> the song was like um abigail you're so pretty i'd like to have you over for a sleepover please and i'm like um sweetheart you really can't invite third graders over for a sleepover of the, of the opposite <laughs> gender I, I love that you like her maybe we could have a play date you know <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, um, so he's just, he's pretty smart and he's figured out that this marriage thing has worked out pretty good for his dad. So he definitely is like wanting to figure out how to get that sort of arrangement for himself, <laughs> where he can get a buddy who's good at the things he's not good at. So he's very interested in like setting that up right away. 
you know, in talking to you, it sounds to me like you're doing all the heavy lifting in the family and you've even had to care for your husband in a way that you probably didn't expect when you were 20 years old. But when I talk to you, you sound very optimistic about the future. And I wonder why. I hope you play that question because my best friend is jumping up and down, yelling and screaming and so happy that somebody else said that to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yes, there are times where that definitely feels true. But I think... I mean, I think that in some ways, having Andy with his diagnosis makes him the best possible parent for Elias. Um, But something that Andy does that's really awesome is he takes Elias to school. And at Elias' school, the kids all line up early, like 20 minutes before school. And Andy stays with Elias in the line And so he will help Elias interact with his classmates before school and um, get to know the other children's names and talk to them, what's going on with them. I have been trying to get Elias to learn those things forever, but I don't communicate that in a way that makes sense to him. So if he had two parents like me, then we'd have a really clean house and a kid who didn't know how to communicate with others. That's a trade-off I'm happy to make, you know? Peggy loves having Andrew be the primary caregiver while she's the breadwinner. These days, she has only one job. It pays more and allows her to work from home. So it's easier for her to take on family stuff if Andrew isn't up for it. Peggy says there's also this. If they hadn't had an autistic kid, they never would have known that Andrew was autistic too. For Andrew, that's a downer because now he has to live the rest of his life knowing he's autistic. But for Peggy, it's a positive. It means Andrew can get the help he never got as a kid, and she has a better understanding of his odd behaviors. After the diagnosis, Andrew's quirks have new meaning. But there are some things that still have a first crushiness about them for Peggy, like those surrealist landscape drawings with a tree, a rock, and a hill. Those still make her swoon. Andrew and Peggy are renewing their vows next year to celebrate the 25th anniversary of when they first met. They're going to do it under the fake stars at a planetarium. Andrew promises, no surprises this time. It is not completely uncommon for people to be unaware that they or their family members are on the spectrum. If any of the symptoms in this story sound familiar to you, go to our website, longestshortesttime.com. We have autism resources there. Also, we want to hear your stories of surprises that changed your family dynamic. Leave your comment on our website at the bottom of this episode. That's episode 70. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, and Abigail Keel. Our engineer is the Reverend John Delore. Our theme music is by the Batteries Duo. Special thanks to Peter Clowney, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akitunde, Jonathan Menhivar, Joanna Solitaroff, Caitlin Pierce, Maxine D.R. Chapman, and Alicia Halliday from the Autism Science Foundation. 
I'll be back next week with a new episode when a childless man... So I'm, I'm kind of in Jesus position. ...gets a C-section simulation. Crucified Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's the one. So tune in for that. The best way to make sure you don't miss it is to subscribe to this show in iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us and write us a review. That'll help us climb in the charts and make it easy for new people to find the show. And here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want you on our show. So pitch us your story. It can be anything about your relationship with your kids or your relationship with your parents. Most of all, we love to hear things we've never heard before. Go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story. You sing your wolf? Yeah. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Hey.